Welcome to another episode of the Editor's Podcast for the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice. Today, Editor-in-Chief Dr. Lloyd Novick speaks with the guest editors of a new supplement issue of the journal on advancing legal epidemiology. Dr. Novick is joined by Colleen Barbero, trained policy scientist and program evaluator working as a health scientist on the Applied Research and Translation Team in the Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Also joining the conversation is Lindsay Cloud, the Director of the Policy Surveillance Program at the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University Beasley School of Law, and Lance Gable, an Associate Professor of Law at Wayne State University Law School. pleased at the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice that we've been able to publish this legal epidemiology supplement. We think this issue will move the field forward. And I'd like to thank all of you for this this discussion. Let's move on. What is legal epidemiology? Sure. So legal epidemiology is the scientific study and deployment of law as a factor in the cause, distribution, and prevention of disease and injury in a population. Essentially, it's the study of the impact of laws and policies on health. And if the concept of legal epi is new to you, I think the single most important takeaway is simply that laws and legal practices can be studied in the same general manner and with the same general scientific methods as any other social phenomena of importance to population health. These studies provide us with empirical evidence about which laws and policies work to improve health, and sometimes more importantly, which ones do not. Important aspect of legal epidemiology is that it clearly links the impacts and influence of law with health outcomes. Experts in both fields often fail to recognize this connection. It, it allows people in both fields to bridge the gap and develop better understandings of the interconnection between law and health. What does this new field contribute? Legal epidemiology has been evolving as a field for quite a while, uh, but the term legal epidemiology was proposed for the field uh, within the past decade. And so the terminology is new, but the, the concept is a little bit older than that. Legal epidemiology is comprised of three research components. Uh, first, legal prevention and control, Second, law as a causal factor in in disease rates. And third, policy surveillance. And so it brings together public health law research and public health law practice, uh, including legal practice, in ways that haven't been fully conceptualized before. Researchers had already been conducting studies addressing these three components um, over many years with uh, specific public health topics, such as tobacco, alcohol use, physical activity, vaccinations, et cetera. In the supplement, we wanted to show how legal epidemiology is expanding to cover more health conditions, specifically as it relates to prevention, control, and treatment of chronic and non-communicable diseases. It's particularly relevant to public health officials who can use the results of legal epidemiology studies to figure out the types of laws that might work to improve health outcomes in their own jurisdiction. And I'll add a few additional points. So although law is generally not developed, implemented, and evaluated strategically or systematically, 
it could be, and it should be, using legal epi. These methods can really lead to better health faster because there's a focus on a few things. First, creating legal data for evaluation. This is the real paradigm shift when you're talking about these methods because they provide a rigorous and systematic approach for turning the text of law into quantitative data and then using that data to evaluate the impact of laws and policies on health. Additionally, these methods create nonpartisan information about the current status and trends in the law over time. They allow for the diffusion of innovative policy ideas by creating and publishing transparent information about the nuanced features of laws and policies across geographic regions and again over time. This allows cities, states, and even countries to compare their jurisdiction's law to others and hunt for good ideas or even just to identify where they stand on a particular topic. All of this builds workforce capacity. We really focus on publishing and supporting open source legal data that can be freely used, replicated, or updated through the transparency of these methods and the accompanying documents that we publish alongside the methods, which include code books, the data itself, and the research protocol, which outlines the entire uh, methodology of a particular project. What impact has legal epidemiology had on chronic illnesses such as cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, including heart attacks and strokes? Legal epidemiology is contributing methods and tools to help better understand and assess the public health impact of laws following their implementation. This includes analyzing whether a law may benefit or hinder the health of the public, Legal epidemiology studies are also helping us build the evidence base for public health officials to draw from when considering policy approaches to address risk factors and disease rates among their populations. For example, the Community Guide has conducted systematic reviews examining the direct evidence for smoke-free policies and state drum shop liability laws and has recommended such laws based on the strength of the evidence. These types of laws address behavioral changes and risk factors for chronic diseases and are expected to have positive health impacts. In the case of smoke-free laws, the community guide did find reduced asthma and cardiovascular disease-related death rates. Given the efficacy of tobacco control policies in protecting and promoting the health of the public, policies are among the interventions included in the 2014 Best Practices for comprehensive tobacco control programs. I think there is much yet to be done to advance the use of legal epidemiology to understand the relationship between laws and chronic disease rates. Can you talk about some of the articles in this issue that look at related topics such as housing policies, and also alcohol, tobacco, and sodium related laws? So I'll start, and I wanted to highlight one of the articles that focuses on uh, sodium-related laws. Uh, so nearly half of adults in the U.S. have hypertension, which is a leading risk factor for heart disease and stroke. However, only about a quarter of them have it under control. We know that many U.S. adults consume too much sodium on a daily basis, and this may contribute to high blood pressure rates. Unfortunately, People are unwittingly exposed to high sodium content products by eating out at restaurants or eating processed foods, and, and this might be something that they're not aware of. Uh, 
one of the ways that communities have been trying to address this is by making lower sodium food and beverage items more accessible. Uh, the CDC's Division uh, for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention, which is one of the uh, sponsors and, and contributors to this issue, um, conducted an analysis of these laws at the state and local levels um, in the 20 most populous cities and 20 most populous counties to see what laws these jurisdictions had enacted to address sodium content of food and beverage items. The study looked at six different categories of laws that authorized, required, incentivized, or preempted access to sodium products. And so, so here are the six categories. Uh, lower, one is lower sodium products in vending machines. Two, lower sodium meals offered by daily meal providers, for example, uh, adult prisons or residential living or congregate care services. Uh, three, lower sodium food products offered in workplaces. For restaurant menu labeling to provide consumers with information about the sodium content in food. Five economic initiatives to help consumers purchase lower sodium foods and six uh, incentives for grocers or stores to offer lo lower sodium foods. Uh, on the whole, there was not a lot of legislative or regulatory activity across the country in these areas, but they did find pockets where there were laws that could affect adult behavior. Uh, so, in total, there were 48 laws across 6 cities, 5 counties, and 15 states out of 90 jurisdictions studied. 10 of these laws were uh, state preemption laws, and California had the most sodium reduction laws. Some types of laws were more common at the city or county level than at the state level, which would fit with the concept of home rule, where local governments are constitutionally or legislatively granted certain police powers, including the authority to regulate issues of public health concern. However, the study also found that more of the laws impact businesses and uh, non-institutionalized adults, for example, uh, vending machines, workplaces, and restaurant labeling, and it may be difficult to obtain public support for their passage in other states beyond where they are, they're already in place. And whether these laws are affecting total sodium consumption is a separate question that will need to be studied in the future and, and is, a, is an area that could lead to some, some future development in, uh, as, as researchers take this up over time. And I will turn to the housing work, which was generated um, at our center at Temple uh, and funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So safe, stable housing is essential to good health. Housing hazards, including mold, vermin, and lead can contribute to the development or exacerbation of chronic illnesses, such as asthma and neurological disorders. In addition, eviction has been associated with poor physical and mental health outcomes. There are many laws aimed at maintaining healthy housing or protecting access to stable housing, but their impacts are mostly unknown. The work for the study uh, published in this supplement focuses on three primary categories of housing laws that we map using policy surveillance, uh, which is a legal epi method for legal mapping that involves the systematic collection, analysis, and dissemination of laws across jurisdictions and over time. So these three primary categories uh, that were included in this study were city nuisance property ordinances, looking at the 40 largest cities in the US, along with two 50 state level data sets focused on fair housing and landlord tenant laws. We actually uh, just updated these data sets uh, on lawatlas.org, uh, so you can check those updates out. And through our housing work, 
and this study, we found that very little change has occurred in these laws over time. I think in general, we just aren't doing enough in the United States to test or evaluate housing laws. And we hope that our work in developing these data sets creates a foundation to spur future evaluation and research. Temple University and CDC sponsors this supplement. They are leaders in the field of legal epidemiology. Can you tell us more about their role? CDC's Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention co-sponsored the supplement with the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University Beasley School of Law. The Applied Research and Translation team within the division has been working with Temple for almost six years on various legal epidemiology projects. We began exploring the need for a legal epidemiology journal or journal supplement in 2015. The Center for Public Health Law Research conducted a needs assessment in late 2015, early 2016 for the division and found that as the field continues to grow and as study methods, evidence reviews, policy surveillance analyses, and other public health law resources accumulate, there's a greater need for journals publishing peer-reviewed empirical legal research. We worked together to identify journal outlets that would be interested in highlighting legal epidemiology as a field, and eventually in 2018, we commissioned this supplement with the journal. In this supplement, we selected an array of articles that not only address non-communicable disease and injury, but also showcase some of the methods researchers use when conducting legal epidemiology studies. And it's just amazing to think about how much the field has grown and changed uh, within these past five years since we started working on this project with the CDC. It has been truly rewarding to see the attention legal epidemiology research studies get once they're published. We've seen the field really expand to reflect a growing appetite within this area of methods and research. Just this year, the National Library of Medicine added legal epidemiology and policy surveillance as a MESH term. And APHA is also considering adding the terms as tags for their annual meeting. I would like to add that we anticipate getting more articles in the future that are in the sphere of legal epidemiology. We're really looking forward to that. Is there anything else you would like to add from CDC or Temple University as you look back on developing this supplemental issue? I think it's been overall a great experience, and we hope that collectively this supplement has inspired people to seek out high-quality evaluation of laws and policies and other legal epidemiology-based work as they go about their practice. And of course, we hope that they consider seeking out public health lawyers, practitioners, and researchers who work within this field uh, and use us as resources. Yeah, in addition to that, I, I have two other points that I wanted to uh, add to the conversation. The first is that one of the things that we've really seen as this field has developed is the importance of using data to, to link up the effects of law and public health outcomes. And so uh, it's, it's really important as, as we go forward to make sure that uh, data continues to be used to inform policymaking. Um, there have been some uh, trends within the past year or so of uh, 
changes in policy, uh, including at the federal level at the EPA, where uh, new regulations would make it harder to use certain kinds of data in policymaking decisions. And I think that's a trend that's going in the wrong direction. If there's anything that we've learned from some of these studies is how important the data can be in developing and implementing good policy. Uh, the second point uh, at, is that as we are recording this podcast now, uh, we're uh, in the early stages of the COVID-19 outbreak. It's just starting to have major effects in the U.S. and worldwide. And um, as this unprecedented unprecedented event develops, legal interventions are going to be integral to curtailing the spread of the outbreak and mitigating harm. Uh, harm mitigation and the role of law, though, goes far beyond the impacts of infectious diseases. Chronic health conditions that we focus on in this issue in particular um, may also be exacerbated in times of stress and anxiety and um, access to supplies, support, and services, including healthcare services for all types of health conditions will be affected uh, for the foreseeable future as this outbreak develops over time. So it it's truly imperative to think broadly about how law can mitigate the impacts of this crisis and legal epidemiology will be a useful tool to assess how law and policy interventions affect health more broadly. Uh, we can use these tools to make better decisions now and in the future and so I hope we continue to to use these methods and tools in a way that can really improve all of our health. I'd like to thank all of you for developing and for producing this excellent issue, Legal Epidemiology. Thanks so much. I'd just like to say that everyone at JPHMP has been wonderful to work with. Thanks. Thanks again. This feature has been brought to you by JPHMP Direct, the companion site of the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice. To learn more about advancing legal epidemiology, visit us online at jphmpdirect.com.